Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary Podcast. We're continuing our series titled Presence. Throughout this series, we're learning to become aware of the divine in our midst. Today, Pastor Jason Coker shares a teaching from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, titled Love. Today, we're going to continue our series on the presence of God. We've been uh, talking through what it, what it looks like to experience the presence of God, how we can learn how to put ourselves in a position to experience what we oftentimes call the presence of God. And in the process of this series, what we've really tried to do, uh, Alex and I have been teaching this together, what we've really tried to do is affirm that part of Christianity as a spiritual tradition is to have a relationship with God, is to come into contact with the creator of the universe, to come into contact with a sense of the divine that is in and through and among all things, but also maybe to challenge some of our notions that to have a relationship with God somehow isolates you or protects you from other people. And so kind of a fundamental thesis of this entire series is that as we look through Scripture and the Christian tradition's teachings about God and God's presence, we find that there really is no separating being in the presence of God from being in the presence of each other, being in relationship with each other. And last week, we talked about what it means to be in the presence of God through relationship with each other. And that was kind of a hinge point in this series. Up to that point, all the things we'd been talking about were things that we sort of cultivate on our own. Like, for example, at the beginning of the series, our first topic was curiosity and this idea that we can begin to engage in a sense of the divine by cultivating within ourselves a real curiosity about what's happening in the world around us and begin to recognize the good things that are happening in the people and the places that we're surrounded by at all times. But that really is an individual skill. We can learn to be curious about what's happening, but ultimately we are led, I believe, and this is what I said last week, we are led to the realization that to be in the presence of God means to be in relationship with God through relationship with each other. And that's where things, I think, get difficult and frightening, and, and maybe even for many of us, sometimes the cost is a little too high. So today we're going to talk more explicitly about what love looks like, and I talked a lot about love last week within the context of relationships. Today we're going to look at Romans chapter 12, starting at the end of Romans chapter 12 with the passage that we read earlier today. Larry did a great job reading that passage, and we're going to take a look at Paul's practical advice about what it means to actually be in a loving relationship with God and with other people. So, would you just maybe join with me in a word of prayer as we begin our teaching today? Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come here. Uh, Spirit of God, we are uh, anxious for a greater sense of your presence in our lives. We are curious and committed to finding out how it is that we can be connected to a sense of your divine love in and through all things and all people. And so today, Lord, as we begin to wrestle with what it actually looks like uh, for your presence to permeate our lives and our relationships, well, I just want to ask that you would illuminate those areas of our hearts, those areas of our relationships where we need to let love 
begin to rule a bit more in the decisions that we make and uh, the ways that we speak and relate to each other, the ways that we think about each other, and the ways that we defend our turf and our territory. Uh, God, we just want to invite you to really transform us as we use this time and this space to really focus on you. And pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Janelle and I had some new friends over this week for dinner, and um, uh, they, uh, at one point during dinner, they looked at us and asked a really great question. They said, uh, what's the church's thing? You know, like the Oceanside Sanctuary. What's, like, what's the Oceanside Sanctuary's thing? And, like, I feel really inadequate to answer that question, because uh, you guys are really weird. Um, <laughs> So, <laughs> uh, and here's why that was such a great question. It's a great question because um, many churches do have like a thing, right? They're about something in particular. Um, and, and we're a church that, that often looks like churches that are about one particular thing. And just when you think like you've figured out what the Oceanside Sanctuary is all about, it turns out we sometimes are about something else that often is in conflict with that first thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, for example, uh, you know, we can feel very much like uh, what some churches would call like a progressive church. Like, we don't particularly care, for example, whether you are gay or straight. We think that God loves you and affirms you who, in who you are. And, and that can make it look like this is a very kind of quote unquote progressive church. But on the other hand, you know, we've got this old building with this old stained glass and uh, we do more traditional things like read the Lord's Prayer and say that together every day. And we embrace scripture and take it very seriously and try to understand exactly what it means for our lives. And that can feel very traditional. And so that feels like a bit of a tension for us. Or uh, some churches can be very much, and I know that you're going to know what I mean when I say this, some churches can feel very much like, like the Republican church or the Democrat church, <laughs> right? And uh, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but we're not either of those. A uh, bunch of you are, you know, Democrats and you know, a bunch of you are Republicans, and a few of you are independents, and one or two of you nutcases are libertarians. And, you know, if you're like me, then you're like an anarcho-communist of some kind. <laughs> uh, the point is, I can guarantee you that you're probably sitting in proximity to somebody who voted in the last election for somebody that you despise. Uh, and so we're not really like that. We're not really like the liberal church or the conservative church either. Also, you know, we're the kind of church that really affirms people of faith no matter what their faith tradition is. So we're very ecumenical, uh, for example. Many of you have history in evangelical church settings. Many of you come from Catholic backgrounds. Many of you come from Lutheran backgrounds. Many of you come from Episcopalian backgrounds. If you're Larry Hart, you were at one point a part of all of those different backgrounds. <laughs> and we're okay with that because we're not the kind of church that believes that Catholics aren't real Christians, for example. Um, 
And so we can be very ecumenical. And even interfaith, we're a church that in the past has welcomed Muslims into this building to break bread with and to begin to build a sense of fellowship with. And when we had a, a couple of Muslim dinners that we participated in, we learned to really honor the tradition that they're a part of and the ways that their tradition really often reflects exactly the values that we have as Christians. And when those Muslims came here for dinner, the dinner went so well and it lasted so long that they couldn't make it back to their Muslim in time for prayers, so they used the classroom upstairs to have their prayers. And it was a really beautiful moment. So we're not just ecumenical, we're even in a sense very interfaith on the one hand, but on the other hand, we as a church are Christians. We stand within the Christian tradition. We embrace Christianity unapologetically and practice that tradition. And as much as I might love my brothers and sisters who are uh, Muslim, I'm not Muslim and can't even begin to pretend to be the same tradition that they are. I don't want to be, don't need to be. I am a follower of Christ. And so we tend to sort of blur a lot of those lines here. And I know that can be confusing and I know that can sometimes be difficult because, here's why I think it can be difficult, because becoming a church that is about a particular thing is a really proven and reliable way to grow a church. One of the best ways to grow a church is to be about something that is rooted in rivalries with others. To say, we're going to be these kinds of Christians and denigrate and exclude all others, and by doing that, we attract everybody that's about that thing, right? So churches can have, very much like people, a kind of ego, right? Sort of a, this is who we are, we're the best at it, and if you want to be the best too, this is where you come. I think one of the things that we are is a church that's trying to move past a sense of institutional ego. A church that's full of people who are trying to get past their own egos. And ultimately, my answer to the question, what's your thing, what, whether it was a good answer or not, I don't know. But my answer to them was, well, we're the church full of people who are trying to learn to love each other in spite of our differences. That's what we are. So I'm, I'm really trying to learn to love each of you, especially those of you who voted for the wrong person. <laughs> I was talking about you, Tina. <laughs> And so, see, the thing is, I, I think that's what it means to be a Christian. I don't think it means being the one who's right about everything. I think it means being somebody who is so ultimately committed to love that I need Christ to teach me how to love people who want to kill me. And I need Christ to teach me how to love the people that I want to kill. <laughs> right? So... That, I think, is ultimately where Paul goes in his passage, too. He does it, I think, in a much more pragmatic way. He has really helpful, pragmatic advice here in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through this, and then I want to sort of reverse engineer Romans chapter 12 and figure out how Paul got to this place. But first, let's start here where uh, Larry took us earlier today. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 
begins this. He says, let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So again, this is Paul giving really practical advice to the Christians living in Rome. Hate what's evil, hold fast to what's good, love one another with mutual affection. I like this one. Outdo one another in showing honor. Like, what if our competition with each other was a competition for how we could outdo each other in honoring one another? Do not lag in zeal, but be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. This is just like a laundry list of how to be a decent community of human beings. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, Paul turns a corner here. Up to this point, he's just sort of been giving us good general advice about how to, you know, be a community of decency and goodness with each other. But now he's, I think, going a little too far. He wants us to bless people who curse us. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. I really appreciate that he added the so far as it depends on you bit. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. He's going to return to this theme now. Because loving each other is one thing when we all agree. It's one thing when we all sort of see things the same way. But he's going to return to this theme of learning to love people who do not agree with us, who don't see things the same way, or who maybe even are enemies. So he turns to this subject of vengeance. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So somebody does something wrong to you. Paul says, don't take revenge on them. Trust God. Let God deal with that ultimate account of how to pay that person back. He doesn't tell us how God's going to pay that person back. He just says, you don't worry about that. Now, this is super interesting to me. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. <laughs> Do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, this uh, phrase, uh, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. It's like the most Jewish thing ever. It comes right out of Proverbs, right? The idea of, you know, if you really want to get vengeance on your enemies, here's what you got to do. Be nice to them. It's like, a, it's like a humanity hack, right? Like, think of it this way. God is so committed to us not killing each other that he has taken our innate desire for vengeance and he's tried to make us believe that the best way to get revenge is to be nice to your enemy. I'm not buying that for a minute. I mean, think about it, right? Like John made me mad, right? Like, but John just burns me up, that guy. Gosh, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Let me see. I know. Oh, I know I'm going to get John back. I'm going to send him a birthday card. <laughs> That's right. And I'm going to write something really infuriating in there, you know, like, uh, hey, wishing you the best. 
have a great day. <laughs> like the idea that somehow like doing something nice for somebody is going to really burn them up and infuriate them. And what I love about this is that we oftentimes make God about, like, you know, all of our motives and intentions being pure, right? Like, there's somebody out there, and if I were out there, I'd be that somebody, by the way. There's somebody out there who's thinking, oh, you know, love's not really love unless the intention is pure. And God's like, hey, listen, whatever it takes to get you not to kill each other is fine with me. <laughs> if what you need is to think that being nice will burn up your enemy, then fine. Being nice to them will burn up your enemy. I think this speaks to like our level of brokenness, that in order to get us to just be decent to each other, God has to try to convince us that it's a good way of getting revenge. That's what he says here. And so I just love that. You know, it's, it's a very Jewish thing to like turn something upside down on its head and try to like hack human psychology, right? But it doesn't speak to a very highly developed sense of morality either. At the most basic level, please, just don't kill each other. So Paul gets to, I think, the heart of what it means to love when he challenges us to, at the very least, be willing to love even our enemies. Dorothy Day is uh, uh, one of the founders of the Catholic Worker Movement, first half of the 20th century. She's a pretty radical social activist, uh, also a Catholic, and this is one of her famous sayings, I really only love God as much as the person I love the least. So who's that for you? Who's the person you love the least? Because I think we tend to say, well, you know, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind. And so as long as I love God, really love God, like, sing praises to him and worship him and conjure up images of God like, you know, he's my boyfriend, uh, you know, and we go on dates together and he whispers sweet nothings into my ear and promises that we'll be together for all of eternity in heaven. As long as I elevate that conception of God to some high level in my heart or my mind, then all is good and we forget that Jesus tied that to and love your neighbor as yourself. We forget that in Matthew 25, Jesus said, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. What if it's true that we really only love God as much as we love the person we love the least? What if loving God means we have to love each other? And maybe more importantly, how can we possibly get to the place where we can love in that way Right before these passages in Romans chapter 12, Paul says something that I think is super instructive. Actually, starting in verse 3, before he gives this laundry list of ways that we can live in a more loving posture towards each other, he says this, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. But in sober judgment, consider yourself according to the measure of faith that God has assigned you. For as you are one body, and one body has many members, 
Not all the members have the same function. So we who are many have one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. Then he goes on to this really famous passage, if you pay attention to Paul, about gifts, spiritual gifts. He says, we have gifts that are different according to the grace that God has given us. Some of us prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering to the needs of others, teaching, exhortation, giving, generosity, leadership, diligence, compassion, cheerfulness. In other words, Paul is saying in order for us to become the kind of people who can love anyone, including love each other, then in order to get to that place, we have to first decide that we're going to get over ourselves. The psychologist Carl Jung puts it this way. He says, the first half of our lives are dedicated to building a healthy ego. The second half of our lives are dedicated to getting over it. And I actually really love that equation and think it fits perfectly well with Paul's statement here. Because, you know, you can't offer anything. You can't have a gift to give unless at some point in your life you develop a sense of ego. This is who I am. This is what I'm good at. This is what I do. This is what I have to offer. That requires a pretty healthy ego. But then in order to take that thing, that gift, that that ability, and then to offer it to another group of people, boy, that will kill your ego faster than anything. And really, in order to do that in a healthy way, we have to come to the realization that like, we don't have all the gifts. I, mean, I, I need what David and Amelia have to offer, and they need what I have to offer. And that will kill your ego pretty quickly, too. Because if you're anything like me, you think, well, I'd just be able to do everything. If you're anything like me, you want to be able to do everything. But Paul says, in order for us to really learn to love each other, in order for us to live in harmony with each other, in order for us to be able to even love our enemies, we have to get over ourselves. We have to accept that we're good at something, that God has given us grace of some kind, but then we have to submit to a community of people that we need because they need us and vice versa. And how do we get to that place? Well, I think Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, if you're ever taking a quiz or a test, and one of the questions on that quiz or test is, what's Jason Coker's favorite passage in the Bible? The answer is this. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. For I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So if the question is, how do we get over ourselves? How do we get over our egos? The answer is, we learn to love God. We learn to take our whole selves, our body, our mind, our gifts, our weaknesses, every little bit of ourselves, and place ourselves on an offering before the transcendent being of the universe and say, Whatever you would do with me is okay with me. And 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and then love each other. That's sort of the order here. I didn't invent this. In order for us to learn how to love each other, we have to first be willing to give ourselves to the divine, transcendent, all-powerful, and yet all-loving being of the universe and be okay with whatever that being wants to do with us. And that's worship. That's what we do when we come here. We practice bringing ourselves before God and laying ourselves down and saying, it's not about me. So whatever you would have me do. And that's not easy. Because you know what God's going to do with you, right? <laughs> He's going to have you showing up at the second Saturday Homeless Resource Fair, like washing some stranger's hair. He's going to have you cooking breakfast for some stranger or worse yet, like sitting down at the table and eating next to them and getting to know them and finding out how they are made in the image of God and how they are gifted by the grace of God and how they ought to be included in the community of God, even though they don't have a house to live in and don't have two nickels to rub together. Guess what? You're no better than they are. It's about letting go of control. That's really hard to do. It's really hard to, to say, not my will, but yours be done. But that is what we are called to. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We ask God that as we would come to places like this, and read passages of Scripture, and sing songs, and encourage each other, that you would teach us how to let go of our egos, that you would teach us how to get over ourselves, that through these little practices, like coming to the table, and eating a cracker and drinking a little cup of grape juice that you would invite us into a realization that love and your presence in love is bigger and deeper and wider than anything that we could construct or control for ourselves. We ask that you would Teach us to dissolve ourselves and our agendas and our egos into your will, your goodness, and your love for us and for each other. Make us into the people that you've created us to be. Help us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can attest and see what your goodwill is. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.